acting is something that's about being in touch with yourself and being extremely empathetic. So empathetic that you can actually put yourself physically and vocally in every other way in someone else's shoes. That was Rachel Holmes as Sophie in Arena Stage's recent production of Lynn Nottage's Pulitzer Prize winning play, Ruined. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Rachel Holmes is a young actress of enormous range and talent, with an ability to transform herself from play to play. We just heard her as Sophie in Ruined a young girl who finds refuge in a brothel after being a victim of the systematic rape that's carried out in the war-torn Democratic Republic of Congo. But Rachel Holmes is equally comfortable playing Queen Isabel in Richard II or Princess Catherine in Henry V. And her subtle comedic style was on display recently in the play The Book Club Group. Although mainly a stage actor, she's no stranger to television, and she does voiceover work as well as commercials. It's a busy, complicated life. But Rachel Holmes adds another dimension, or two, to the mix. She is a teaching artist, believing that arts education is necessary to open the doors for creativity in any field. And she's also what she calls a citizen artist, meaning she takes care to regularly choose productions that allow her to portray characters who are typically not heard in plays that pose challenging questions to the audience. She looks for plays like Ruined, with its story of the aftermath of unspeakable violence, or Dream Acts, which relates the stories of undocumented students, or Good People, which is a sometimes funny, sometimes jarring exploration of race and class. Interestingly, rather than taking the more recognized route of an actor who eventually discovers political activism, Rachel Holmes comes to acting through her commitment to social activism. Absolutely. When I was about 15 years old, I received a Fulbright to study in France for the summer through a world learning experiment in international living, and it absolutely changed my life. And, you know, I was about 15 years old, and one of the things we did was we had an internship where I ended up working with very young children in a particularly diverse part of Paris, the 18th arrondissement, and it's called a Goutte d'Or taste of gold because it's so diverse. You have immigrants from all over, but there's a tremendous population from Northern Africa, for example. And it was very clear to me how quickly the arts, you know, doing theater games with these children, singing and dancing with them, not only calmed them, because these are children who perhaps are born in France, but their parents are immigrants. So their parents are being deported if they're there illegally. You know, they might be doing the grocery shopping for their parents because they speak the language. They might be in charge of the household in a very basic way, even though they're barely 10 years old. It was amazing how the arts just allowed them to be kids again and, and open up in a way about what was going on with them. I am a teaching artist as well, and hands down, arts and education is absolutely necessary to open doors for creativity. It's not a question about if a student is going to become an artist professionally. But even if you're a scientist or an athlete, creativity is being programmed out of us on a daily basis, I do believe. And the arts is a fantastic and necessary way to keep us 
in that creative world that we all are in when we're children. I mean, anyone who has children or has been around children can attest to the wonderful world that they inhabit and how easily they can draw you into it. So, you know, along the way, the activism is also turned into very specific things. Um, I attended an all-girls school in New York City. It became very clear to me gender inequalities in every country, not just third world countries, but also right here in the United States. So a lot of the work that I choose to do, whether it's original work or, you know, something that I might go out and audition for, I love it when it's possible to kind of use both of my degrees because I have a master's in arts and I have a bachelor's in political science. So I love being able to merge those worlds, especially to give voices to the voiceless. You did that in a play I saw here in Washington, D.C. in Ruined. You played oh, the yeah, role yeah, of, yes, at of Arena Sophie. Stage. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's right. Tell us about your approach to that role and how it really did combine. Oh, wow. That was amazing. So, uh, yes, it was Ruined at Arena Stage, directed by Charles Randolph Wright, one of my dear friends who's about to open Motown on Broadway. And I played the lead character of Sophie, um, an 18-year-old girl who had been gang-raped in the Congo, where a civil war is going on. That That's one of the most challenging roles I've ever played in and I guess, as a result, one of the most rewarding. The first thing I actually had to work on with Sophie was her walk, because she has a fistula from being assaulted so deeply, and she can't walk correctly anymore. And once I got that into my body, that was actually the hardest part. It was very real, and there was a moment when I was practicing my walk. We'd have rehearsal at 10 in the morning or something, and I get there early, and I'm just walking around in this walk. And It dawned on me for the first time ever that almost a good 10 years before when I was studying in Paris, doing an internship in the 18th arrondissement, in the 18th quarter, that there are women who I used to see walking that way. And, you know, being a young, kind of naive person, I had no idea. I thought, oh, maybe they hurt their legs or they had sprained ankles. And I now realize that these are women who have been raped and this is how they're surviving. So something as tiny as trying to find the first physicality of a character was a real tipping point for me. It was a perfect world of merging the political with the arts. And and I do consider myself a citizen artist. I wrote a letter to the Rwandan and Congolese ambassadors in D.C. to come and see the show. And it was pretty special to be able to write to them. And I actually wrote the letter in French. I speak fluent French after studying in France for a while. And these amazing people whose job it is to try to bring their issues to the forefront of the world came to see this play. And, you know, they're not used to going out to see shows like that. And they had no idea that you could go and see a piece of theater and walk away with as much information as, you know, maybe a press conference or some kind of political meeting on the Hill, you know. So it kind of opened their eyes in a way of what is possible through the arts. And, of course, a lot of homework had to be done with what the situation is in the Congo and how lucky I am to be able to have the luxury to be bringing this story to people through a play and then being able to go safely home myself, you know, as a young woman and not not have to be living those nightmares that many, many women are experiencing as we have this interview right now. Piggybacking on that, but talking to you on a, on a more personal level, taking on that character and being in that situation every night, I understand, can't compare to the women who have actually experienced it. But still, it's a lot to take on. It is a lot to take on, and it can really wear on you. And, you know, there are a lot of different methods to acting. I didn't formally train as a method actor, for example. 
But there was something about that play, you know, there's a, a term we use as actors, like phoning it in. And phoning it in means you're not really feeling the emotions. You're just kind of playing something by rote, which sometimes can happen if you're doing eight shows a week for something. You know, let's say it's something of not, not amazing relevance. You know, it's something that's very light, you know, maybe a light comedy or something. You get your muscle men- memory. You know your lines. You kind of go out there and just perform. You do the show, and then you come off stage, get out of costume, and you're on with your life. That was not the case with Ruined. The more that we did the show, the deeper we got into it. And it was very important that we took care of each other on a mental level. Like very realistically, it is absolutely possible to become very depressed working a show like that. And Charles, our director, did a phenomenal job of taking care of us. And I always say that is the first job, first and foremost job of a director is to take care of their actors. Because if they're not taking care of their actors, there's no way those actors will feel safe enough or open enough or be able to access their talents enough to realize the vision of the director. So the very first rehearsal, Charles actually had all the men in the room raise their hand and they outnumbered us. There's like four women in the play basically, you know, to maybe 15 men. And he said, men, take care of these women. You have no idea what they're about to go through. So it was really tricky and it was hard to shake off. And it actually took me a good week and a half after the show closed to stop feeling the need to walk in that way. It was very it was very scary and haunting. Do you tend to prepare for a play? We talked about Ruined, it was getting the walk, but do you tend to do it with physicality or through the words, the atmosphere? How do you approach it? It really depends on the play and the genre. Uh, my first love was always Shakespeare. Uh, my family's from Jamaica, West Indies, and my father loves great works. And I'm, I mean, I knew lines of Shakespeare by the time I was three years old because he would be reciting them. And those were words to live by in his book. So if I'm approaching a classical play, I do believe the answers are all in the words, no matter what vision the director might want to put around it. But with a more modern play, especially with a living playwright, who, if you're lucky, is in the room with you, then the conversation can start. It depends on the story. For me, the reason I started Sophie with the physical is partially because I I think I had an understanding of where she was coming from already psychologically, as much as I can understand, having the luxury of not having gone through such hell on earth. But I knew if I could get into her body, because she's the heart of that play, If I could actually just feel what it feels like to walk in her shoes physically, I knew it would take care of the rest. And I think part of that comes from the fact that I, you know, started dancing very young. So my first love has always been to kind of express myself through my body and and through song, if anything, not not I think so much can be said without words. So it does really depend on the project. How important is the director? Oh, amazingly important. In the healthiest of relationships, I consider my director to be my mirror and my collaborator. And, you know, I've been brought on because this director is trusting me to realize his or her vision. So it's absolutely paramount that we have extremely open avenues of communication. And, you know, that's in any relationship in life. That's not just a director-actor relationship. That's with friends. That's in if you're a scientist. Communication is key. Trust is golden. And the director is very important. You know, it's sad at times when communications break down. One of the tricky parts of being an actor who does do a lot of your research and, you know, understands different stories is there there comes a time when you are realizing this director's vision and you you do have to stick to that. You might not always agree with it, but I do think it is possible to remain completely open and the director is doing a fine enough job in their own account of it and justifying their choices, then then absolutely it can be a really 
wonderful relationship. How do you cope when, in fact, the communication is fraught and the trust is not quite there? Yeah, it's that's a very realistic question that happens. I feel lucky that that hasn't happened with me too often. I mean, there are myriad answers. I mean, you know, realistically, you can always leave a show if it's if it's that bad that you're just not getting through. I think the avenues have to be open, and it's a two-way street. It's not a question of the blame game. It's it's chemistry. You know, when you book a play, you've met the director maybe twice. That preliminary audition, then you get called back, and then you book the role. You know, an audition may last anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes. That's not a lot of time in which to really discover or realize if this is someone that you can work with, you know, for many, many hours a day, up to four and a half weeks. You know, casting is one of the last things to be done when you're putting a production together. You know, the director already has their designers. They're working with the dramaturg. And it's it's really not easy to walk into a room and kind of be stared at by a room full of people who are often looking at you like a commodity. I just came in from a commercial audition where, you know, I was told to turn around twice and the camera went up and down on my body. I mean, how many people have to do that for their line of work? <laughs> it's yeah. not an easy job. It's not easy. And it's it is very hard. So it can be tricky, but that's when you have to remember that we're professionals, you know. And when I'm in the classroom, I actually run a lot of my classrooms in a professional manner. I ask my students to bring their best selves to the table because I think there's something to be said for that. And that old adage, being a professional is doing the thing you love on days when you don't want to do it, (laughs) you know. Um, (laughs) I know we all chuckle at that one. But, you know, things can become fraught, and as far as I'm concerned – I love a good debate. I love a good, hearty debate. And as long as the debate is about the work, then your heart is in the right place. When it starts to veer off to the side, I mean, we all have this. If you're arguing with someone about a point and then all of a sudden it gets personal in some way, someone's calling you a name, I mean, then then you really have to check the situation. But another thing that I subscribe to, which my really good friend uh, Sarah Chalmers-Simmons actually introduced to me many years ago was the phrase, hold on tightly but let go lightly. And basically that means have your idea and fight for it and be ready to back it up as confidently and as succinctly and articulately as you can. But once you see it's not serving the greater good, you know, the bigger vision, be free to let it go and trust enough to let it go and that you're in good hands. And it comes back to trust. You know, when you're part of a production, it's about trust. And it's a very delicate process because we all know, especially teaching children, we all know that we all play better when we feel safe and feel safe to play and feel safe to try things and fail so that we can learn what doesn't work and then arrive at what does. You talked about being a citizen artist. Say a little bit more what you mean about that. When I think of a citizen artist, I think of an artist whose main goal is to spark civic dialogue through their work. Um, An artist for whom it's important to give back to their community, to give voice to the voiceless, to educate. It's not about booking the fanciest job. It's not about the shiny new materialistic thing or being in with the fad. It's understanding that through the history of time, art has been such a bastion of courage and a symbol, a force for expressing a civilization and showing where the civilization might go. You know, rebirth, renaissance. A a citizen artist to me is someone who understands that they're just a tiny speck of this whole world going around and has decided to give their life to trying to make 
the world a more educated place. And notice I didn't say, oh, make it a better place. I'm not about to sing We Are the World, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I'm very realistic. But I think art is extremely important. And I grew up being smothered in the arts from my parents. I also grew up being smothered in math. I'm very good at math. I went to an all-girls school. I'm a feminist. I don't think there's anything a woman can't do, and I'll always stand behind that. I do think that arts are just as important and inspiring as math and science. All these discoveries in technology, these are scientifically gifted people who are dreaming, who are saying, what if, I wonder if, and troubleshooting and failing and learning from their failures and moving on and, and scheduling their work and being diligent and trying and trying again. Even when they're failing, they don't get that grant. They haven't discovered the new gene, but they're still in the lab plunking away. That is exactly the process that I do as an actor with a role or when I'm writing. There is nothing different. Another work that you recently did, I think, that certainly is an indication of your commitment to citizen art is DreamAx. Yes, yes. DreamAx is just a groundbreaking piece of theater, and it deals with stories of undocumented citizens here in the United States. And that's close to my heart. I'm first-generation American. My family's from Jamaica again. And I have undocumented citizens in my family. The beauty of that play, I mean, there, there are a couple things, but one of the things that's really struck me with that script is the fact that you might not know that a friend of yours is undocumented. You know, that's not something that we kind of wear on our sleeves, you know. It's not, you can't tell by someone's accent. Um, oftentimes they don't have an accent. They're from here. You know, they came here very young. So, you know, once again, in terms of being a citizen artist, I love the idea of arts keeping the pulse on a civilization and seeing where the different paradigm shifts are coming, where those shifts are being created, how the world is reacting to those shifts. And Dream Acts is a wonderful piece of, sometimes people kind of wince at the term political theater, but I think it is a piece of theater that sparks a very important dialogue that is happening right now in this country and has been happening for quite a while. And it's incredibly important because it's yet another thing that's going on where a lot of people just have no idea. You know, we just did a reading at New York University and it was amazing to watch people's eyes just open at cer certain statistics and just they just had no idea. It's not that they don't care. It's not that they're lazy. They just don't know because we're living in an age now where we are so bombarded by information Every second is a tweet about something. Sometimes you get so bombarded that you kind of check out, and it's hard to know what to pay attention to. So DreamAx is a wonderful way, again, to give voice to people, real people. This is off of, you know, real interviews. And I love that it's about young people. This is about a 13-year-old. I teach 13-year-olds every day. So this is very important when I go to my classroom, looking around the room, who has that onus on them? We like to think that you have all these inalienable rights here in the United States, do we? A citizen artist loves to pose questions. You know, I don't consider myself some kind of solver. I want that civic discourse. I want people who would never normally talk to someone on the other side to have that cup of coffee and have that conversation. Because I think that's where true answers can be fleshed out. And going back to something that makes an actor's job, I think the most scary part is being that empathetic being that open personally to be able to understand someone else's story, it's pretty profound. And I'll go so far as to say as a teacher, as an educator, empathy is also something that is endangered. I think it's like an endangered trait 
and that scares me. I think the more that we can educate each other to be more empathetic and understand that everyone has a complex story behind them. I don't know anyone who's walking around 100% got it, 100% perfect and so happy. It will change. Things things will change. It takes a long time. I mean, you know, I don't expect to see some of the changes I dream of in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime. But, you know, something like DreamAx, I think that's something that has momentum. That's something where if you have productions of that going on around the country and steam behind that and the discourse that can happen post-show that the audience development for post-show discussion, that's huge. How long have you been teaching? How long have you been an educator? I started teaching in college, and I was so scared to do it because part of being the youngest of a large family is just, you know, everyone's kind of done their own thing already. My dad was an Olympic boxer for Jamaica. My mother is this beautiful woman who came over from Jamaica on her own with my siblings before bringing my father up. I mean, that blows my mind. Like if I were to just pick up right now and go to another country with four kids and be a single mom, amazing, amazing stories. Immigrants are amazingly courageous, out of this world people. And getting back to DreamAx for a quick second, that is one thing I love about that play. My really dear friend told me when we first met, just because I speak with an accent doesn't mean I think with one. And... I say that again, just because I speak with an accent doesn't mean I think with one. And I'm at the point now where I won't tolerate it when someone's denigrating someone for being from a different place or speaking with an accent. You know, by the way, it means that they speak another language, a full other language that you probably don't, you know. But getting back to teaching, it's amazing how every classroom feeds you because every child you meet is completely different than the child before. And every classroom dynamic is different. And I'm currently a teaching artist with the New Victory Theater here in New York City. And I was living in D.C. for a couple of years, and I was teaching with the Shakespeare Theater down there. And wherever I do a show, if I do a show regionally, you know, I did a production of Good People in Boston last fall, I always visit the schools. And I always try to teach a few classes while I'm in that city to get a taste of what their school system is about. And the whole world over, a Chuck Me quote, children are the windows of the world. And it is our job to nurture and protect them. And in a lot of ways, we haven't been doing that job. I never thought of myself as a teacher. It's really weird now. I'll go home and, you know, I'll tell them, hey, class went well. And my parents will be like, Rachel, wow, I really can't believe you're a teacher now. Look at you, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to be able to share that, share that hope and get their creative juices flowing. Because part of being young is not knowing. You don't know what you're good at yet. Or maybe you're good at everything. And all of a sudden, real life happens and you realize, wait, but what did you enjoy doing? Fine that you're good at everything, but what feeds you? How do you see children, let's say the 13-year-olds you're teaching in New York, how do you see them evolve through the acting class? First of all, I just have to give a shout out. Classroom teachers are just the heroes of the world, full stop. As a teaching artist, I'll go in for maybe one or two classes to prepare them to see a show, or perhaps I'll have a longer residency where I go in maybe once or twice a week for a few months, and then I'm out. I've moved on to another school. Classroom teachers are there day in, day out, living, growing with these children. And 13's a tricky age. We all know there are a lot of things. A lot of things are happening to you physically changing. You're figuring out. You're trying to find yourself, figure out yourself. But also it's a time in a lot of the schools that I've seen under the school system in greater New York, but also in D.C. and definitely in Boston, where kids really do start to get left behind. And it's really interesting how the arts can – I wonder if the word is is kind of protect them from 
being let down in a way because I think there are cracks that are to be mended. And I've seen amazing turnarounds from the first day of a residency to the last day. I've seen a 13-year-old student who is very angry at the world. Something went wrong somewhere. Somewhere they were hurt. Perhaps they're coming from a really tough home life and they don't fit in in school. And I've had students who refuse, are unwilling to participate up until the last day. And all of a sudden they see everyone having a good time and they decide they want to step on stage for just one minute to say one word. And that seems like, oh, that's not a very good average. That's not good. But I'm say that that is actually important. And if you get to see that moment, it's pretty powerful. Rachel, let's talk briefly about your teaching process. You walk into your classroom. How do you start? When I go into the classroom and I'm working alongside with the classroom teacher, you know, we're a team. And with my partner teacher, or if I'm a solo teaching artist, just myself with the classroom teacher, the goal is to open their minds, open their minds. And, and a lot of my exercises in my basic craft has to do with the body again. You know, it is very normal for me to walk in for something that we have to rehearse, but we spend the first 10 minutes, you know, stretching and I ask them how their day's going. Did you guys have a test today? How's, how's class going? Just checking in with them. You'd be surprised how many people don't check in with children. How was your day? That question goes a long way. Not the what are you doing, but how are you doing? To show someone you actually care and you're actually giving them your undivided attention in a time where we all have these phones and computers that are constantly beeping and demanding our responses. So it's really a safe zone. And in my own self, I know that that is something I wish I had earlier on in my school life. So it feels wonderful to be able to give back and supply that now. Rachel, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Thank you for having me. That was actress Rachel Holmes. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Ruined, used courtesy of Arena Stage. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, author Lillian Fatterman discusses her memoir about her mother's early life. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. You know.